Well, the conversation was tense. We're in England. It's the 1500s, the era of the Protestant Reformation. A Catholic scholar glared across the table at a man named William Tyndale. And he said these words, or something near to it. If we have to choose between God and the Pope, it would be better to live without God's word than the Pope's. Tyndale's response, Sir, if God spares my life, I will see to it that a common plowboy knows more of Scripture than you do. Well, to fully understand this conversation, we have to go back a few years, a few hundred years, to the 1300s. At this time, the Roman Catholic Church was the church in the West. Uh, the only Bible was the Latin Vulgate. It was a translation from a man named Jerome in the early, early church. Most of the laity didn't know Latin, so the Bible was out of reach to them because they could not read it. And even services, in many ways, were out of reach to them because they were conducted in Latin. But there was an Oxford scholar, again in England, named John Wycliffe. And he believed that Scripture is free from error, and it should be the sole rule of the church. On the flip side of that, he also believed that popes and bishops could err. It was only a few years earlier that they had too many popes. They had three popes, and they all claimed to be the right one. And he also believed that Christ, not the pope, was the head of the church. So Wycliffe translated the Latin Vulgate, which had some uh, translation errors in it, but he translated it into English so that the common man could read the Bible for himself. And this got him into some hot water. But the papacy had some other things going on, so Wycliffe ended up dying of natural causes as an old man. But years later, once they uh, had finished whatever they were doing, they decided to get back at him to go and dig Wycliffe bones up and burn them into ashes and throw them in the river, kind of to thumb their nose at him. And from 1409 on, it became illegal to have a Bible translation in English. It was actually a capital offense. Which brings us back to Tyndale. Tyndale studied at Oxford and at Cambridge. He was a scholar, so he had access to the Bible because of this. He could read it in original languages. He could read Latin. Um, and he, like Wycliffe, became convinced that the common person should have access to the Bible. So he went to Wittenberg, Germany. If you're familiar at all with church history, you know that that's where Martin Luther was. So he went to Wittenberg, and he translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew, using the original languages, not the Latin, into English. And he used Luther's German Bible as his guide. He did this in 1524, and by 1526, English versions of the New Testament and the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, began to flood into England, allowing people to read the Bible for themselves. This got him into hot water, and in 1536, he was betrayed to the Roman church while he was living in Antwerp. The next year, he was tied to a stake, strangled to death, and his body was burnt. So how does this story fit in today's text about suffering? Well, today is the text is going to be bookended by suffering. It's a large text. It's all of chapter 4. But I wanted us to see Peter's flow of thought in suffering there. And if ever there was a man who suffered for the glory of God, it was William Tyndale. He was constantly on the run. He was far from his homeland, England, but he was working for his people uh, to give them the Bible. So he was out of his home. At one point, he was shipwrecked and lost all of his Bible translations and had to start again from scratch. In his final days of work, he was actually in prison while still translating the Bible for England, people in England to have the Bible. How many of us, when we're facing death in a cold, dark, medieval prison, now this is a medieval prison, right? So it's not like three hot meals a day, exercise out in the gym, and color TV. This is like you're lucky to eat, like people have to bring you food. How many of us in this situation would be thinking about translating the scriptures for other people? We have hard enough time reading our Bibles every day. So this man suffered for the cause of Christ and was executed for a proper view of justification. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, that stinks for him, uh, but why do we have to suffer at all? I mean, a lot of preachers on TV say that if I live right, if I do certain things, I don't have to suffer. Cannot a loving God prevent me from suffering? 
1891, there was a man named Harold Kushner. Uh, he was a rabbi writing to an evangelical audience, and he wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in this book, he claimed that God wants to stop our suffering, but he simply cannot. Thinking about Job, and if you're unfamiliar with Job, he was a man in the Old Testament. He lost his family. He lost wealth. Um, he basically went from a seemingly perfect, perfect life to ruin. So Kushner, writing about Job, says, The author of Job believes in God's goodness, and he believes in Job's goodness, and is prepared to give up his belief that God is all-powerful. Bad things happen to good people in this world, but God, it is not God who wills it. I want you to remember that statement for later when we read our text. He says, it's not God that wills it. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. He goes on to say, God says to you, if you think it's so easy to keep the world straight and true, to keep unfair things from happening to people, why don't you try it? He says, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes God cannot even bring that about. There are things that are too difficult even for God, end quote. Later in the book, he writes that we need to lower our expectations, that there are some things that God can't even control. Friends, is this the case? Does God want his creation to be wealthy, prosperous, and suffering free, but simply cannot bring it about? Is he more like our biggest fan sitting in the stand saying, you can do it, little buddy, I believe in you? Or is it the reason that we are suffering because we have not checked certain boxes? And if we could just check these boxes, our suffering would stop. Well, as we continue our study of 1 Peter, a series entitled The Marrow of Christian Faith, it is written to a persecuted church in Asia Minor, and Peter is encouraging the church to press on despite opposition. We've seen so far our Trinitarian salvation, that Christians are foreknown by the Father, they are set apart by the Spirit, and they are cleansed by the blood of the Son. Christians are to live obedient lives that honor God, love each other as chosen pilgrims. We are the pilgrim family. Honor the emperor, but fear God. We've seen God's good plan for marriage and the precious atoning death of Christ. There are a lot of themes, obedience, humility, God's sovereignty, the supremacy of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, and another major theme in 1 Peter is that of suffering. We saw last week that the pilgrim family strives to live a holy life, that they are ready to defend the truth, that they have followed the victorious Christ through death in the flesh to life in the spirit. This week, Continuing our series and part two of last week's sermon, uh, The Conduct of the Pilgrim Family, part two, this week, Endure Suffering. And the text that I would like to draw your attention to is that of 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you'd turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, we will read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living for sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these things, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving each other, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let no one, none of you, suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify in that name. For it is a time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As I said, this text is bookended by suffering. It starts out with, since Christ suffered, and then we're to suffer. I want us to see the flow of Peter's thought and not just break it up. This could be two sermons, but I wanted to see the flow of Peter's thought here. And suffering is a part of the Christian life. So in this text, we find three unerring hallmarks of the Pilgrim family concerning suffering. We see that members of the Pilgrim family suffer as Christ. Members of the Pilgrim family suffer in light of eternity. And members of the Pilgrim family rejoice in suffering. Again, we suffer as Christ, we suffer in light of eternity, and we rejoice in suffering. Tom Schreiner, a professor at Southern Seminary, gives us our guiding statement for this text when he writes, Just as Christians suffered in the flesh by dying, or excuse me, just as Christ suffered in the flesh by dying, so too believers should resolve to suffer. For the decision to suffer indicates they have ceased to let sin have dominion over them. Now, before we get started, if you do not have a high view of God, a high view of God, you will always struggle to understand suffering. And on the flip side of that, if you do not have a humble view of man, a humble view of yourself, understanding that our suffering comes from the fall, from sin, then again, you will struggle to understand and live with suffering. First, members of the Pilgrim family suffer as Christ. Look with me at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin. Again, anytime you're reading the New Testament and you see the word therefore, it's always linked to the text prior. So Peter is saying, because Christ has victory over hostile powers, because he is Lord over all creation, because of our righteous Lord died for us, the unrighteous, because he took your place and drank your cup of wrath, therefore live like this. Christ suffered in the flesh. Now there's an important distinction to make here when it comes to theology. There's a doctrine, 75 cent word, called impassibility. Impassibility is that God does not experience emotional changes due to his interaction with the created order. In other words, we don't have power over his emotions. So, that being said, Jesus could not have suffered in his divinity. He was fully God, fully man. We're talking about suffered in the flesh. Matthew Barrett writes, We actually do not want a God who suffers, despite what our first instincts might say. Such a God may be like us, but he cannot help us, let alone redeem us from the evil of the world. So Christ suffered in his flesh. Peter is saying in his humanity. That may seem like a very precise and like strange uh, distinction to make, but trust me, it's a very important one. So I want to make sure that we point that out as we go on. That Christ bore our sins on the cross. As we read last week, he suffered once for sin. It was a one-time offering. He doesn't continue to need to suffer for sins. Um, He's not sacrificed anew with the Lord's Supper, but one time, one time sufficient sin for your past, present, and future sins covers them all. The righteous died for the unrighteous in what we call the great exchange. And just as Christ suffered by dying in the flesh, so too believers need to resolve to suffer. 
This shows that we are truly believers, that we have ceased to let sin have dominion over us. Now, it's a different suffering, right? His suffering paid our debt. Our suffering uh, sanctifies us and shows the genuineness of our faith, but still suffering nonetheless. Now, when we say cease to sin, we are not talking about a perfect, sinless life. Um, some have claimed that over the years. You've heard me talk about Spurgeon a lot. There's a funny story. Um, he's at a conference where a man stands up and says, I have ceased to sin. I no longer sin. And Spurgeon didn't say anything, and people were amazed. They were like, surely Spurgeon would say something about this. Well, the next morning they were at breakfast, and Spurgeon snuck up behind him with a cold pitcher of milk and dumped it over the guy's head. And the guy just went into a whole tirade, screaming, cussing in front of everybody, and they said Spurgeon just smiled and walked off. <laughs> so we are not talking about ceasing to sin in a sense that you will never sin again, but you are ceasing to allow it to have dominion over you. Tom Schreiner writes, The point is not that believers who suffer have attained sinless perfection, as if they do not sin after suffering, but what Peter has emphasized was that those who commit themselves to suffer, who will willingly endure scorn and mockery for their faith, have triumphed over sin. They have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in lawless activities of unbelievers and endure criticisms because of their faith. It's that you are choosing to look different from the rest of the world different from your community. You no longer live for fleshly passions. Look with me at verses two through four. So as to live for the rest of the time, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Those who are truly in union with Christ will live out their faith. They will choose to suffer rather than to pursue lust. Again, Spurgeon, in a book called The Soul Winner, he's writing about evangelism to pastors. He says, For a person is not saved while he lives in sin. Let him say what he will. He cannot be saved from sin while he is a slave to it. How can a drunkard be saved from drunkenness while he still riots as before? How can you say the swearer is saved from blasphemy when he still profanes? Words must be used in their true meaning. Now, the great object of Christian work should be that some might be saved from their sins, purified, made white, and made examples of integrity, chastity, honesty, and righteousness as the fruit of the Spirit of God. Where this is not the case, we have labored in vain and spent our strength for nothing. John says, or Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The one who truly has faith in Jesus Christ is, will not be content in walking in open rebellion. Now, again, I'm not advocating you will be perfect, but a true Christian will not allow sin to flourish in their life, but will seek to kill it. What the old timers used to say, mortify. You will seek to mortify that sin in your life. John Owen once said, said a lot, you see it all over Facebook in certain circles, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And when, and we see that the world will be surprised when you do not join them. Look at verse 4. If you're here and you trust Christ, you probably already know this. People will look at you crazy when you do not do the things that they do. When you do not affirm the things they affirm. If you read your Bible on your lunch break, they will think you're crazy. And let me just say, it doesn't take long when you talk to a Christian to figure out what is feeding their souls, whether it's the 24-hour news or the Bible, especially in a time right now. On the flip side of that, if you call yourself a Christian, yet you can hang with a group of non-believers, go to their parties, and no one notices a difference in you, I would question whether you are truly following Christ or not. You say, well, I don't like that. I don't either. I had rather you be rejected by men than Christ say to you, I never knew you. You say, well, Jesus hang out, hung out with sinners. Yes, very true. I'm not saying shut yourself up in this church, but when Jesus hung out with sinners, usually one or two things happened. Either people repented and followed him, or they started trying to kill him. 
they usually didn't look, he didn't look like what they were doing. You say, well, I don't want to offend my friends. Well, the Christian life and the gospel will always be the scent of death to those who believe. The gospel is offensive by nature. You remember we talked a few weeks ago about the first, or Corinthians, the Corinthian church, what they valued. The Corinthians in the first century would have valued wealth, power, rhetoric, beauty, not too different from our day. Imagine taking that person, they're in their fine dress at a Greco-Roman banquet, um, and you take them out to a place where people are crucified. We might think in our day, you walk up to a Hollywood premiere where people are in their sparkly dresses and their tuxedos and take them out to a slaughterhouse dump. They're stinking, rotting bodies. And then you point at a naked, disfigured, beaten Jewish man hanging on the cross, and you say, there's your hope. That's what you need to place your hope in. And here's why the Roman would be offended. Because the cross is adverse to everything they value. Wealth. There's no wealth in a Roman cross. It's the opposite. You're dying. Beauty. There's no physical beauty in a disfigured, low-society man being killed. Power. There is no power in dying on a cross as a non-citizen. They actually, in the first century, called it the slave's wood. So they would say, to the slave's wood with this person. That meant they were going to crucify him. And that's how our Lord died for us. Think about that. God that has always existed wrapped himself in flesh and went to the slave's wood for you and I. Rhetoric. There is certainly no entertaining rhetoric or smooth speech when you're dying on a cross. But God in the flesh laid down his life in this manner for those who will call him Lord. Our culture is no different. The gospel is foolishness. We sang about it this morning in that last song. But to those of us who believe, it is the power of God. We know that we can do nothing to justify ourselves on our own, but that we were only justified by the grace of a loving God. Amen. Through the righteousness of the God-man Jesus. And that's hard to get into your bloodstream in a culture like ours that thinks you have to do things. But the truth is, is that Jesus Christ, who has always existed, wrapped himself in flesh, walked the life that you could not walk. He was perfect humanity. You know, we were talking the other day with someone about Old Testament characters. And, you know, and I don't want to talk bad about people, but they'll say things like dare to be a Daniel or whatever. Do you know what the purpose in the Old Testament characters are? Watch them. Even David, who was a man after God's own heart, he was an adulterer and a murderer. You look at all those Old Testament characters and you see, one by one, their failure and their inability to walk perfectly and to walk the way God wants. And they all point to Jesus, the one who did walked perfectly, walked the life you could not walk, and then took your sins, bore your cup of righteous wrath. He drank it so that you don't have to. He traded his righteousness for unrighteousness, that we might be found justified or not guilty before the righteous judge. And friend, as I say every week, if, if you are not trusting in Christ, call me, talk to me. If you're not sure, talk to me. I want to talk to you. Jesus Christ died that you might be found justified, not guilty, before a righteous judge. Look with me at chapter five, or verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who reject the gospel of Christ and mocks Christians will have to answer to God. Those who live for evil desires will have to pay for them. God is a righteous judge. He doesn't just set people free. That, that has to be paid for, and Christ paid that. But if Christ has not drank your righteous cup of wrath, then it still waits for you in eternity, because he is a righteous judge, and death will not exempt anyone from judgment. All who reject Christ in this life will answer for that. It is the only through union with Christ that we will be found justified. But here in verse 5, we see that all will give an account to the righteous judge. He will judge the living and the dead. Look with me at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know, last week we had the Clarence passage uh, text that took some navigation. There's a little bit of that here. Um, there's really three ways to see this, view, uh, this text, and one of them is totally off base. And it's the idea that we walk out into a seminary and preach to, or cemetery uh, and preach to dead people. Okay. I think we can safely say that's not what Peter's talking about here. 
The other is what I thought before I read, went into a commentary and I had to do some backtracking this week, is the theological idea that we preach to those who are dead in sin that they might be alive to Christ, Ephesians 2. Um, theologically correct, but contextually not what Peter is talking about here. What he's talking about is those who believe the gospel and have died. And the non-believers look and say, well, yeah, what use is it being a Christian? That guy still died, but they're alive to Christ. Unbelievers saw the death of Christians as evidence that there is no benefit for becoming a Christian. They say, look, this guy still died, and he suffered while he did it. He was a candle in Nero's garden. They lit him on fire. They sewed him into skins with scorpions and snakes and all kinds of crazy stuff and threw him out in the Mediterranean. Like, why do I want to be that? I'm still going to die, and I'm going to have a terrible life while I'm at it. There's no use in that. But Peter's saying death is not the last word for Christians. We live for eternity. The world looks for success over faithfulness. Sadly, we see this even in the church sometimes. Do we not? I mean, think about it. And and again, I'm not talking bad on our brothers and stuff, but they see a church that went from 50 to 500 in 18 months, and it's like a bunch of kids running to the back of the school bus to see a fight, right? Like everybody's like, what did he do? What did he do? I want to do that too. But what about just being faithful? Having a goal, having a vision, but being faithful. Friends, do not concern yourself with the things the world sees as success. Be faithful to what Scripture says. Keep planting that seed. Know that God gives an increase. Be uh, persistent in sharing the gospel in your circles, where you work, and know that God gives the increase. Do that with confidence. Those who have died in persecution before Christ's return are blessed, as we talked about last week, right? So it's a warfare, right? The the fall started the war where Jesus is constant, or Satan is constantly trying to um, tie God's hands and pull his people away. And then we see when Jesus Christ comes to earth, it's an inbreaking into humanity. And the cross was D-Day. The enemy's back was broken. And we live in that portion between D-Day and V-E-Day before the Axis powers are finally, finally and ultimately vanquished. And we live for the next life. Look at verse 6. Even those who are judged sinners by sinners in this life will live in the Spirit. We do not live for this life only. We live in light of eternity. Paul in Roman 8 says, suffering, suffering, man, suffering is not even worthy to be compared to future glory. And I love this quote by Augustine in the city of God. Augustine uh, is, you know, early church uh, theologian and pastor, and he's looking out at the sunset in North Africa, right? Beautiful desert sunset. And he says, if these are the beauties afforded to sinful man, what does God have in store for those who love him? I love that quote. Everyone enjoys a sunset. So if God lets everyone enjoy a sunset, what does he have for us who follow him? Hmm. I also love The Last Battle. You guys know I love C.S. Lewis. We read the Chronicle Narnia with the kids. And The Last Battle, after old Narnia has gone away and they're in this heaven, it's the new Narnia type. It's a story. It's not exactly like the Bible. Um, but they're running through this new Narnia, right? And so they're running and they don't get tired. Like the horses, the, the people, like they're just charging, sprinting full speed and they're not getting tired. And one of them looks at the other one and says, it's like the old Narnia, but it's like the colors are deeper and richer. And it's like the land is bigger and everything just seems dipper, deeper and richer and bigger. Think of the most beautiful scene you have ever seen. It does not compare to eternity. Friends, we have a terrible view of heaven. We often view it, well, all right, floating around on a cloud and playing a harp, that's better than burning forever. So yeah, of course. But no, like heaven is going to be such more than you think. So, so, so much greater than you think. It does not compare that bad view of eternity with Christ where he is the light. Second point, members of the pilgrim family suffer in light of eternity. Look with me at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. End times. The New Testament never encourages uh, believers to withdraw from the world, but to be ready, to be faithful, to be found faithful. You don't know when the Lord's coming back. Be a faithful servant now. Make your life count now. Someone once asked Martin Luther, they said, if you knew Jesus was coming back today, what would you do? And he said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. 
In other words, he's saying live life in light of the end. Do the appointed day's task. Stay faithful. Do what you're supposed to do. Remember that life is a vapor. In small group this week, we had a very good discussion. I don't, do you guys love small group? I just love small group. Like, it charges me up every Wednesday. Like, you know, you start out and you're like, oh, I got to study for this. And, but by the end of it, I'm like just so glad. But so we were talking about the shortness of life, that if Jesus does not come back, every single one of us in here will die a lot sooner than we probably think or want. So be alert. Think sensibly. There's not a single person in here that can add one single day to their life by worrying. Who said that? You could get a two-year diagnosis saying you got two years to live and die in a car wreck on the way home. You could get the death sentence for being a Christian and die of a heart attack in your cell. You could get the uh, Pope death warrant, I don't know what you call that, and then die of old age in your home, like Wycliffe. Live for Christ today. Live for the kingdom today. Not tomorrow, not when you think it's safe, not some future date, but live for Christ now. Charles Spurgeon, ministering in an outbreak of cholera in 1855, said, Who is the man that does not fear to die? I will tell you. The man that is a believer. Fear to die? Thank God I do not. The cholera may come back next summer, and I pray it doesn't. But if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil, I will visit the sick by day and by night until I drop. And if it takes me, well, sudden death means sudden glory. What words for us today? Stay faithful. Love God. Love the church. Do not fear. Look with me at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. Above all, lavish each other with love. We are the pilgrim family. We are aliens together. Now, as I mentioned last week, we have to have a biblical and balanced view of love, a biblical and balanced view of unity. Oftentimes, when we dig a little deeper into the average American's definition of love, we find that it's highly centered on themselves, an affirmation of their fears, an affirmation of their desires, rather than what the Bible teaches. They say, if you truly love me, you're going to affirm what I want. But biblical love is love and truth. Again, we don't allow someone to drink poison. I was reading this week that there's some crazy guy down in Florida that said he had a cure for COVID, AIDS, like, yeah, like eight things, and it was basically poison. And then like, I don't remember if he had to drink it or if it was in a syringe. Like, if you love someone, you don't say, yeah, do that. No, we pin them up against the wall and take it away from them and say, no, I love you. Don't do that. We do not allow someone to harm themselves if we love them. We do not allow them to believe a lie if we love them or join in any kind of insanity. Godly love is rooted in scriptural truth and a right understanding of God. We love like this, and friends, our sins and offenses will be overlooked here in this church. We are the pilgrim family, aliens together, love one another. Look with me at verses 10, 9 in the first part of 10. Through the first part of 10, excuse me. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I'm sorry, I'm going through 11. I, my notes are wrong. <laughs> whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Part of showing love in Christianity is hospitality. Now, this was a staple in the first century because if you were traveling somewhere, the hotels were really nothing better than brothels. And so even in a Jewish context, they had to show love and hospitality to one another and invite people in if you were traveling. And it was the same way in Christian circles. True Christian love shows hospitality even when it's hard. My wife can tell you all about this book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She read it when I was at seminary and loves it. Um, but Christian hospitality is messy. It's not just fancy dinners, you know, with silver platters. But Christian hospitality is also, I got toys on the floor. Come in. Christian hospitality is also, you know, I don't have a guest room, but I got a blow-up mattress. And I'll sleep on the blow-up mattress. I'll put fresh sheets on my bed. Why don't you take that? That's Christian love. That's Christian hospitality. And friends, if we become persecuted, we're going to learn this really quick. We're going to quickly learn about the end of Acts chapter 2. The true church will. Use your gifts to serve God. Look at verse 10. Every Christian here has a gifting. So if you're here and you're a believer and you say, I don't have a gifting, you do. 
If you want to find out more about what it is, we can talk, we can pray about it, but I promise you, you have a gift, and it's from God. You can't brag about it. It's for the upbuilding of the church. It's to strengthen faith and advance the kingdom. And Peter divides the gifts here into two major categories, speaking and serving. So speaking being teaching, preaching, prophecy, serving is giving, leading, and mercy. But these are for the building up for the church. God gets the glory. The provider is the one who is praised, and the focus must be on Christ with your gifting. It's never about us. Any gifting you have is not about you. It's always about him. There's a story, and it's one of those stories like, I don't know if it's actually true, if everybody's just heard it so many times that they say my friend's preaching class. Um, and so uh, Randy may have heard it when he was in seminary, um, and Alan. But there's a story that my, one of my mentors told me of his preaching class, or someone's, anyhow, about this guy who went in preaching class, and he preached this really good sermon. And afterwards, the instructor said, hey, man, yeah, that, was, that was a good sermon. And the guy was seeking to be extra pious and said, it was all God. And the preaching instructor said, yeah, it wasn't that good. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so the moral of the story from my preaching instructor at the time was like, when someone says you did a good job, just say thank you and let it be that. Don't go into a whole bunch of, well, I was doing this and I was doing that. But on the other side, don't seek to be very pious and be like, oh, I'm just trying to serve God. Because both of those are really drawing attention to you. Like, I'm so pious that... So it's the same thing with your giftings. If you serve in hospitality, if you are a deacon, if you serve in music, and someone says, oh, I really enjoyed that, just say thank you and know that any gifting you have is of God. In this thought, the idea that God equips his church, that he is good, that he's a provider, causes Peter to burst forth in doxology. Look with me at the end of verse 11. In order that everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you have a high view of yourself, of your ability, and in a low view of God, you need to reform that thought today because it is not about you and it's not about me. It's about the one who has dominion over all. Remember last week we saw in chapter 3, he is overall angels and powers and authorities. They are all subject to Christ. And I say, amen. It is so with Peter. It's all to the glory of Christ. Third point, members of the pilgrim family rejoice in suffering. Look with me at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. If you're a Christian, you're going to be persecuted. I've said this several times. Paul says, all who seek to live a godly life, you are going to be persecuted. Suffering is a tool of the sovereign God. In fact, he wills it. We see at the end of this chapter, it says, according to God's will. In verse 317, we saw, according to God's will. In chapter 1, we saw that God uses your suffering to test your faith. Christ said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. It's as though Kushner never read these verses. He didn't look at these chapters. And that's why we, as Christians, have to take the whole counsel of Scripture and not just cherry-pick verses, but take the whole counsel. Do not be surprised. It's God's will. Suffer as a follower of Jesus. This suffering tests your faith and will continue to sanctify you. You are sanctified in that the Spirit sets you apart, but progressively you are being sanctified. You are continually being set apart. You are being conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus. Again, you can tell when people have been reading their Bibles and when they've been watching too many Hallmark movies because you will be opposed if you're here and you're truly a Christian. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Jesus was crucified. The apostles were whipped for their faith. You remember that story in Acts, right? And they rejoice. Like, they got beat up by the Jewish religious leaders and fist bumped all the way home. They're like, yeah, man, we got to suffer like Jesus did. Paul, I mean, if you take like the apostle Christian suffering, check the box, fill in if you've been any of these, he has to just start yes at the bottom. Like the guy was like shipwrecked and beaten and you can read all about that in scripture. He was like everything. 
If God always gives the children he loves wealth, health, and prosperity, then God hated these guys. But James says, make it count. Count it joy. Trials of various kinds, when you are mocked, when you're opposed, people get frustrated at you for having a biblical worldview. They plan and and scheme behind your back when they slander you because you hold to God's word over their opinions. When you get angry texts or disgruntled emails, your marriage, your children, your work, your fellow Christians, your pastor, your church council, your deacons, various kinds, count it joy. It's all producing steadfastness in your life. Rejoice. It's making you more like your Lord. Schreiner writes, Rejoicing in present suffering is mandated precisely so that believers will have joy in God's presence at the day of judgment. How believers respond, in other words, is an indication on whether or not they truly trust God, whether they truly belong to God. You know, so I know several veterans here. How many of you have ever met a person who served in the military who rejoices at the fact that they don't have any campaign medals? Like they've never been anywhere. They're like, yeah, man, every time my unit was going to deploy, I faked an injury to get out of it. How many people do you know like that? No sailor wants to say, man, I spent my whole life putting around the harbor and I never went out to sea. In fact, I doubt any of you fishermen in here would call that guy a sailor. And that's what Peter's saying. One day you will rejoice that you suffered for Christ. You will rejoice that you took that hill. You will rejoice that you braved that gale. The one who dodges his duty, he proves that he doesn't belong to Christ at all. Look with me at verse 15. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't suffer for wrongdoing. Don't suffer as a meddler or a mischief maker or a busybody or a pest. Ask yourself this. Am I, is what I'm about to say or the text I'm about to fire off for the honor and glory of God or is it for me? Is it for my preference? Now, you guys know I love church history. I'll read church history even when I'm not doing sermon prep. I'll read church history when I'm sleepy. Like, I love church history. And I have yet to ever come across a first century papyrus that somebody wrote to somebody else because they're like, man, I do not want to worship in that tomb this weekend. I want to worship in that catacomb. Or I don't want to worship in that open field. I want to go to that tomb over there while we hide and worship. We have a lot of first century problems in the Western church, do we not? We have a lot of place for meddlers to lurk and to flourish. But friends, let none of us suffer for our preferences. Let none of us suffer as a meddler. I'm not too worried that we have a lot of murderers here, but if you're inclined to that, don't suffer as a murderer either. Instead... Suffer for the name of Christ and the glory of God. Look with me at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you suffer for the name of Christ, don't be ashamed. And if you don't know what I mean, that's the kind of thing where you're sitting in a group. Or like I was in a college course one time on marriage, and I was the only one that held a biblical marriage. And man, I got knocked up pretty hard. People were pretty, I was everything under the sun. Don't be ashamed for that kind of stuff when you're publicly mocked. Be kind. Don't fight with them and yell and stuff. But don't be ashamed when meddlers come against you. Hold fast to the faith, teachings of Scripture. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on Christ. Glorify God. Look with me at 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Judgment begins with the household of God. Just as I said at the beginning of the series, if you have trouble with the word obedience, you are not going to like Peter. He talks a lot about it. If you're here and you call yourself a Christian, you must be characterized by obedience and repentance. As one commentator states, those who are unrepentant will be destroyed. The life of the disobedient shows that you have not trusted in Christ. Jesus said, enter in the narrow gate. For the gate that is wide is easy and it leads to destruction. And and those who enter it are many. There's a lot of people going that way. But the gate is narrow and it is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The Christian life is hard now, but it leads to eternal life in the presence of the Holy God. Look with me, finally, verse 19. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering according to God's will entrust your soul to the faithful creator. Suffering is God's will, and we don't understand it now. And I got that. I struggle with it myself, but he is sovereign. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. When things get sideways, when life gets nuts, you know, COVID, protesters, uh, the boss is putting pressure on you, your wife or your husband leaves you, you have meddlers all around. When life sucker punches you, entrust it to the Lord, the faithful creator. If you're truly serving God, your enemies may get you here, but they will be judged finally and ultimately. Stay faithful. Press on, brothers and sisters. That is one of our themes. Press on. So thinking back to the beginning, Harold Kirshner and to his comments, I think we can firmly say that suffering is a part of God's plan. We do not serve some soft God that's wringing his hand saying, man, I really want to help you, but I can't. He is completely sovereign over creation. A God that is not sovereign, if there is something outside of control, he is not God. In this text, we have seen suffering is a part of the Christian life. Members of the pilgrim family suffer as Christ. They suffer in light of eternity, and they rejoice in suffering. But still, Maybe you're saying, you know, I cannot love a God who allows pain and suffering. I've been there. I've struggled with it. But is God's job just to give us what we want? You know, um, I was in the artillery, and when I was a, a Joe, as we call it, like a private, we'd sit around and we'd fuss and complain because we had to sit in this one place for three hours, and, and none of our officers knew what they were doing, right? Like, they were, they were all dumb. And if they just listened to us... We knew how to fix this stuff. Well, the job that I was in in the artillery, technology took place of, and so I had to find a new job, but they couldn't send me to school for a year. There was a couple of us. So they kind of farmed us out to different places, and I had the unique, unfortunate distinction, whatever you want to say, of becoming my battalion commander's driver or radio man. So every time he was jumping out of an airplane, I was jumping with him. And every time we were in the field, I was driving his Humvee around. But I did that for a year before I got to go to school. And the thing about it is, though, it was a really good time because I learned a lot about the field artillery. You know, in my little corner of it as a Joe, I only saw what I struggled with. But then once I got up to where he was at and I visited the gun lines and the fire direction control and, like, the radar people who don't really do anything and all these different guys, I started to see how it all came together. And there, there was actually method to it. Now, you know, all illustrations break down. But there is a sense in which it's kind of like that, I think. Like we're in our little corner of history thinking, this is not supposed to go this way, God. But the God who writes history sees it all. He knows it all. And if he wills suffering while we don't understand, we need to trust. And you say, well, I refuse to worship a God that allows suffering. C.S. Lewis mentioned him a lot. Might be easier to mention a sermon where I don't mention C.S. Lewis. But... He is portrayed in this movie, The Shadowlands, and it's on Prime, so I encourage you to go watch it. But watch the British one, not the American one. The British one's better, and it gets it closer. But he's, he's kind of, in both of them, he's kind of shown as this entitled, elite, out-of-touch scholastic that's writing about pain, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. But it's all painfully wrong. C.S. <laughs> Lewis was born in Northern Ireland. And his mother died when he was really young and affected him his whole life. His father was very cold, sent him to England, apart from his brother, to this like English boarding school where he was like hazed and beaten all through his childhood. World War I happens. He's sent overseas as an officer. His best friend is killed. And he spends most of the rest of his life taking care of his best friend's mother because of it. And then he himself is wounded. And all of this happened before he ever graduated from Oxford. His brother was an alcoholic that lived with him along with his best friend's mother. So he's caring for all these people. A guy knows about pain. And he says this about suffering in his book, The Problem of Pain. He writes, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the words darkness on the walls of his cell. You may not love him, but he is still God. And he is still good, despite what you're going through. 
If you're a Christian, you are a child of God. If you are a child, then you are an heir, an heir and fellow heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. Romans 8, 17. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. One more illustration. C.H. Spurgeon, we mentioned him. Victorian Baptist preacher, a man that knew about suffering. As I already said, the cholera epidemic. He pastored in the middle of that. If you think COVID's bad, I encourage you to look at cholera in the 1850s. He lived in London at a time when mothers were so desperate that they were throwing their infants into the river because they couldn't feed them. And as far as I could tell, not just newborns, but like JB's age, throwing their babies in the river. On one side, he was attacked by liberals in what's called the downgrade controversy. So they wanted to say the Bible is not inerrant and fully God's word. And as a matter of fact, the Baptist Union went that route. He had to leave. And so he's defending the scriptures on one side. But on the other side, he's fighting the hyper-Calvinists, people that call sinners to repentance, that say you need to follow Christ. So he's being attacked by all sides, trying to be faithful to the Bible. And he died much younger than he should have. He had failing health. He had so much controversy in his life. And he said this, I am quite willing to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years, but the much more distant future shall vindicate me. And a lot of Spurgeon scholars think that they're talking only of like our time, like we love Spurgeon. But I think Spurgeon has in mind, I could be wrong, texts like today. He spent himself for the kingdom. What about you? What if God doesn't have a ticker tape parade in your future, but you're to be a gunnery sergeant Basilone and die in Iwo Jima? Some other, some other illustration. Some other man lost to history. What if it's not brass bands? What if God's plan for you is not health, wealth, and prosperity? I confess, I've had to struggle with this text my whole, myself all week. I confess in my flesh, in my weakness, I desire a long, fruitful ministry to die full of years and be buried next to my beautiful bride, Sarah, and go home to be with my Lord. But what if that's not what God has for me? What if he's got a meat grinder in my future? Friends, I have come to the conclusion that I would rather limp and stagger off the battlefield into the presence of my king than live a life of running. There's no shame in limping up to a defeated king saying you did your best and failed, but there is shame in running. What about you? Friend, have you counted the cost of being a Christian? Or are you faking an injury to avoid a deployment? I will close with a quote from a man who has one of the coolest names ever, C.T. Studd. Uh, he was another Victorian. He was the Patrick Mahomes of his day. He gave up cricket to go be a foreign missionary in the 1800s. And this is what he said, a little, just a line. Only one life shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Would you pray with me?